Once upon a time, in a land far away, I'm Katrina, and I'm Jeff, and welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Myth, legend, folklore, fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the podcast. You know what I'm going to say. We've got another exciting (laughs) episode for you today. And I'm excited because it's been a little bit since I have gotten the opportunity to retell a tale on the podcast. I did retell some fables on our Fifth Friday Fable Fest, but I've got one that I'm going to retell today and I'm super excited about it. I'm excited for you to retell a tale also because I feel like our audience has heard enough talking from me. I also feel like I don't know about yours, but like I feel like I mean, they're literary fairy tales, number one, which is kind of a little bit different. Yes. But also like the one that I am going to retell is has a real different feel in Mm. some ways to many of the other things that we've talked about ever on the podcast. So I think there'll be a lot of interesting things that we can discuss about it. Absolutely. But before we get too ahead of ourselves into the episode, quick announcement. Fifth Friday Fable Fest is going to be September 30th. We're trying to properly announce it enough. The last one, I think we announced it one time and then we were off and on about whether it was going to happen and all. We already told you guys last episode what blew up about our July, so it's fine. Katrina was in the hospital in case you didn't hear the last episode, but she's alive, so it's fine. And at the beginning of October, I'm going to be... In the hospital again. Yes, (laughs) Um, but it's fine. At least that's like scheduled. (laughs) We can work around it. Yeah, It's these emergency hospital trips that it's like, okay, get it together, Yeah, no, absolutely. (laughs) So, yeah, but September 30th, I'm not going to be in a hospital that I know of. (laughs) Knock on wood. Thank you. Our Patreon supporters, who are incredible and amazing, are going to be picking out our topic. And I will tell you which one has gotten the least amount of votes. Mothers. Oh. Which I'm like, ouch. (laughs) Okay, here's a shout out for mothers. Um, As a topic, not... (laughs) Not actual mothers. (laughs) Not actual mothers. Who deserves a shout out even more? But the episodes about mothers in the Aesop's fables, they're actually, well, they're, uh, listen, they're a mixed bag. Some of them are really like moms defending their kids. And then the other half of them are them being like, my child is trash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be a fun, that'd be a fun topic. It'll yeah. be fun no matter what, but maybe, yeah. you know, mothers will have to wait another day. People mm-hmm. like birds better than mothers, I guess. <laughs> That's what I always say. Maybe we're holding this vote in May. People would feel otherwise. Yeah. But. So maybe someday. So September 30th, 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We will be live on Instagram doing our Fifth Friday Fable Fest. And our Instagram, if people don't know it yet, is the fairy underscore tellers. So. We love the participation that we get from our audience when we do these tales. Fables were meant to be discussed, and we love that this format allows us to like have that discussion and interaction. And so far, it's been like pretty awesome. It has been. I would agree. I'm sorry I got distracted because I was debating in my mind whether or not I should correct this like very quibbling thing. But technically, it won't be Eastern Standard Time. It'll be Eastern Daylight right. Time because we will not have gone 
back out of daylight savings. Correct. Or into daylight savings. I don't know how that works, but it's Eastern daylight time. So don't show up an hour <laughs> late or an hour earlier, whatever that would mean. I guess that's true. Even though no one, no one would actually be confused about that. You know what I mean? Uh, maybe if you live in Indiana or Arizona. No, or I was going to say if you live like out of the United States and you don't do daylight savings time, then you might be like. That's true. They're like, that's they're like, true. what time is it in the United if States? If they're trying to say. Like, we yeah, never know. Yeah. Th- that's a good. I forgot. I sometimes forget about our global <laughs> audience, which is embarrassing because we have a very large have, global audience. Yeah, so you do. people that do not live in the United States, we love you. And some of our most like loyal and active Fans, like as from the Instagram live yes. stuff that we've seen and that are just contacts, are not from the United States. No, we have like one listener who has been to both live events that lives in Turkey and they like stay up at night, like way into the night yeah. so that they can like l- listen live to the episode. Shout out to iChan Art. I hope we pronounce that correctly now and in uh, during the live. Yes, thank you so much for people just like iChan Art that are staying up and and having to Google what time is Eastern Daylight Time in my time. And that will not confuse them because if they Googled the other one, it could mess them up. So I'm glad I made the correction. And I don't just seem like a pompous uh, jerkwad. Not just. I don't just (laughs) seem like a pompous jerkwad. You hold multitudes. (laughs) There's room for multiple things to be true at once. So our episode today, Jeff kind of alluded to it before, is going to be about literary fairy tales. I guess Jeff alluded to it before, but also we teased it back at the Sedna episode, just to let people know that we are still like going through, you know, people's suggestions. And if people have some more suggestions, feel free, Um, because I know somebody messaged me and they're like, are you still taking requests or is it too late? And it's like, nope, this is our project for the year. Like, let's do it. And We'll probably carry on into next year. I mean, I don't think it'll be that disruptive to do episodes based on people's like suggestions and requests and mixed in with uh, a new project. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking, too. Like, it's not like we're not going to do them if people suggest them. It just might take longer to get around. Yeah, because we're not dedicating as much time to it. But it's like, you know, these episode ideas have to come from somewhere. Yeah. And the less work we have to do to figure those out, the better. <laughs> or if like, or if the people who are listening to the episode have a suggestion of something they want to listen to, like, of course, by all means, yes. I'll scoot back something on the schedule that I was thinking about doing to make sure that we're doing, you know, what the audience is interested in, like, hearing more about. So, of course, yeah, of course, that's what I meant. It's not about us. It's about <laughs> you, dear listener, what you want to do. But for real, that does make us happy to be able to do stuff that you're interested in because then we'll know like, hey, this is the type of thing people are interested in that listen to this podcast. I know this because someone that listens to this podcast sent it in and said they would like to hear about it. (laughs) So at least one audience member. No, and like I was amazed at last episode, I have been amazed at the amount of people who have messaged and said they remember watching the Grimm's Fairy Tale classics when they were a kid. And that they're like, yeah, yeah. that they've been like, oh, my gosh, I forgot about this. (laughs) And even like on the Instagram when I posted like some pictures of them and the link to like the YouTube playlist of them, people were like, oh, my gosh, I thought I was the only one who had seen this. (laughs) Because, 
Yeah, they, I guess, I don't know, they'd mentioned it to people as they were growing up and other people were like, what are you talking about? Which, that's fair. <laughs> I, like, I yeah. also, I, I have no recollection of ever, like, seeing that show. And so it was interesting to me because I was like, oh, I'm glad somebody told me about this because I didn't even know, you know, that this existed. And so it's surprising to me how many people messaged and were like, I thought I was the only person who'd ever seen these. <laughs> I was like, nope. And now hopefully even more people will watch them and <laughs> there'll be a whole community uh, resurgence. So today we're going to be talking about literary fairy tales. We've done a couple episodes with literary fairy tales, but Pam on Instagram messaged and requested um, some literary fairy tales and specifically Oscar Wilde fairy tales and possibly stories that uh, he might have like borrowed from or that are like in relation to his stories, which I thought was a great suggestion. Yes. Huge Oscar Wilde fan here. Like I've said like three times now, I did not know that he wrote literary fairy tales and I am absolutely delighted to get into them. Yes. Kind of the question to tackle first is like, what are the differences between a fairy tale and a literary fairy tale? And why knowing which stories are which is important. So we'll just give kind of like a quick rundown of that, just because sometimes people like skip around listening to episodes, which is like fine, but I want to make sure that like inside of each episode we have contained all the information that people kind of need to know to enjoy like the episode. And it's good to have like a quick refresher. It'll be good for me because... I cannot tell you how many times someone has been like, oh, I just listened to your episode about blank and me being like, I don't even know what episode that is. <laughs> and then they're telling me things that I said. And I'm like, I don't remember saying that. So a refresher would probably yeah, be good for no me. No worries. So when it comes to different terms to describe different tales, there's always this kind of weird nebulous overlapping that happens. And I have found it helpful to kind of think, I don't know, maybe it won't be helpful to other people, but to kind of like think of these terms as this like kind of floating Venn diagram that kind of like scoots closer into itself and then kind of pulls back sometimes. And it's just, it's a very free floating uh, Venn diagram. <laughs> but literary fairy tales are fairy tales that have a single author. That's an easy definition, but it's also so rigid that then it makes it harder to define itself. And an example of this is that like one of the most famous versions of Beauty and the Beast has a single author, but that doesn't make the story of Beauty and the Beast a literary fairy tale <laughs> because right. it was a story before and even though it got like written out and kind of expanded into a longer book form and is the most well-known version it did exist before it was inspired by a knowledge of the folktale beauty and the beast but the little mermaid by hans christian anderson was also inspired by other folktales so then why is it a literary fairy tale. And kind of the easiest answer for the weird question that I just posed <laughs> to complicate my own like <laughs> definition to illustrate my point. Uh, the easy answer to that is that uh, like the Little Mermaid follows its own formula for a tale. So it's not a beat for beat retelling 
with literary embellishments, like what the Beauty and the Beast story is. That still has the same Mm. storyline that Beauty and the Beast as a tale type typically has. And The Little Mermaid, even though it's inspired by other tales, specifically other tales about mermaids that were in the area, the tale itself is a Hans Christian Andersen invention beat for beat and what happens in it. And he also uses that story as a vehicle to send a very specific message as an author. Yeah. And so all of that definition was to illustrate the point that like, it isn't always easy to define a literary fairy tale because Hans Christian Andersen also wrote down fairy tales that have a longer history that he does do kind of like beat for beat what they're supposed to be. And then the question is, well, but since Hans Christian Andersen took his own liberties with stylistically how he was going to tell the story, doesn't it then make it a literary folk tale or a literary fairy tale? And yes, exactly. It's a very nebulous Venn diagram. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's like yes and no and yes. Yeah. But it's one of those things where it's like you don't know just by reading the thing on its own. Like it does require some sort of outside research to be like, was this a thing before or is this something that this person totally came up with? And it just is very complicated that, you know, our boy Hans had to do both. And so in collections of his work, he's done both. And you're like, okay, you can't just be like, oh, Hans Christian Andersen just wrote his own things. It's like, no, he did not. Yeah. Luckily, those brothers Grimm knew to stay in their lane and they did not do literary fairy tales. They're like, no, we're just... Right. Don't ruin my life and tell me that they did. No, I was just I was just going to point out like the complication that we know in their collecting process because they were collecting them from some people who have some like literary background or even they themselves were slowly uh, editing them as the like issues right. were coming out putting their own but again that's why it's like this nebulous Venn diagram is because Once the story gets like written down, it's very hard to tell, especially if it's written down stylized the way that the person who is writing it down, if they put their own style on it, it's like, at what point does the story become a literary fairy tale? And at what point is it just like an honest reflection of the folk tale? Because also, even if you're listening to a folk tale out loud, it's still you're hearing it usually from like one person. And so then at what point is it that person's creation that you're hearing it from? And at what point does it have like a longer? It's all very nebulous. All of the definitions, which is frustrating because I I feel like I'm this way. And I feel like a lot of humans are where we want to know definitively. Is this this? Like, is this white or is this black? Is this right or is this wrong? Like we want everything like very binary, one or the other. And it's like there are shades of gray of all of this, which is, I don't know. It's fascinating and also frustrating. Yeah. But I'm sorry. I I was going to say, I didn't let you finish your thought about the Grimm's brothers because I made a face and then you were like, oh, no. (laughs) well that's fine it was you know it was just a joke anyway but but the point that i was kind of getting to that is like a real thought is that there are some that we know are literary fairy tales yes and there are some that we know are this is an existing tale that this person also wrote down in their own version but it is very clearly like this other story that they added just a little bit of embellishment so like while there are all these things in between that does make it difficult there are some cases where we can be pretty definitive about it which brings a little bit of comfort to my soul And I was going to say, for the most part, literary fairy tales are stories that have 
fairy tale like qualities in them magic transformations rags to riches fantastical characters like that kind of thing whether it's talking animals objects come to life different you know those kind of fairy tale like qualities they have that but then also we know they come from like a single author or creator and a lot of Hans Christian Andersen tales are like that where it's like he came up with them himself they have fairy tale like elements in them but they are his own story and creation and the ones that Oscar Wilde created are also they have fairy tale like qualities to them but also very much they came from a single author they don't have like a, a long unknown history back into you know the middle ages so talking about Oscar Wilde I'm gonna say I refuse to talk about Oscar Wilde without mentioning his mother first I had thought before this suggestion that um, I probably would cover his mother more fully before doing like an Oscar Wilde tale. But this is fine. We're we're jumping ahead a little bit, but it'll be fine because when when we go back to talk about Oscar Wilde's mother, maybe, you know, people will be like, oh, OK, like I remember this. Katrina teased this episode, so it'll be fine. <laughs> so I just want to say quickly, women in fairy tale and folklore collecting have been sidelined for too long. Basically, the entire history of fairy tales and folklore, uh, the women and the work that they do has always been kind of pushed to the back. Andrew Lang and his like fairy books, his wife, who was an incredible collector and translator and was the person who collected and translated most of the uh, stories in the fairy rainbow fairy tale library nora lang you know she doesn't get mentioned most of the grimm's brothers stories that they collected was thanks to their next door neighbors it was a family of girls also last name wild which is interesting but they collected a lot of their stories from those women and then also aristocratic women who were writing the stories down sending them in letters uh to the grimm's brothers and so just there's so many women <laughs> throughout fairy tale and folklore collecting history that don't get enough mention and speranza wild that's her pen name was Oscar Wilde's mother. Her name was Lady Jane Francesca L.G. Agnes Wilde. I see why she decided to go by a pen name. To save on ink. <laughs> so she was proudly Irish in a time when that was kind of dangerous. And she... She did a lot of writing for um, newspapers. The types of writing that she was doing, it was probably best for her to have a pen name. Her first pen name, when she first kind of like got recognized, um, she used a male pen name, which a lot of women mm. had to do that to be recognized as good writers and be like, like, oh, yeah. this chap makes a good point. And then somebody reached out and she was like, <laughs> actually... <laughs> I'm a lady. And that person was like, I knew it was garbage <laughs> the whole time. No, they actually employed her and had her write like regularly. Yeah. I'm so happy to hear that because I said that in a joke, but it's like that type of thing oh, has Yeah, no, happened. 100%. And she wrote a lot. And then she started collecting folk tales, folk narratives, and also like superstitions. So fairy tales and folk narrative collecting was a way that people were 
using to build a national identity. And this kind of started off with the Brothers Grimm. That was specifically what they were doing when they were collecting tales, was they were trying to create a, a distinct German identity because this was before Germany like existed. And so they were trying to show how distinctly different they were from the French, which is interesting because like some of the stories that they collected are very close to like French tales or the people who gave them the stories, they themselves would have been considered French. Look how not French we are, <laughs> as proved by all of these French tales that we are sharing with yeah. you. And so because fairy tales and folk narrative collecting was this way to kind of show a national identity, that was one of the reasons why, that's why Lady Jane Wilde became part of that folk lore collecting tradition is because she wanted to accomplish that. So... Speranza Wilde's son, Oscar, he was surrounded by artists and literature writers, academics, storytelling. And like, I will say that it's no wonder that he became a great writer. A lot of people say like, oh, it's no wonder that he became like a great writer. But he also had a brother who I don't think was a famously great talent. And so, you know, it wasn't all the parents. I don't want to take away from Oscar Wilde, like that he was his own person and could take credit for, you know, like his own accomplishments. But I will say that like his parents did greatly influence him, like both of them. And I have a quote from the Oxford Companion to Fairy Tales so that I can prove that I'm I'm not making this stuff up. <laughs> Oscar's father, Sir William Wilde, had retold tales of the Irish she and Irish popular superstitions, while his mother, the patriotic poet Lady Jane Wilde or Speranza, had used materials collected by her husband and herself to write what Yeats considered one of the most important books on the Celtic fairy tale, Ancient Legends, Mystic Charms, and Superstitions of Ireland. And I want to say that, like, I, I wish that I could do this episode kind of on tales that his parents, specifically his mother, collected that then, you know, carried into Oscar Wilde's own work in fairy tales. That's not what this episode is going to be. But to just kind of like throw that out there, like another quote from the Oxford Companion to Fairy Tales, Vivian Holland Wild's son reminded readers that his father spent much time in his childhood in Conmara and Irish materials also contribute to Wild's tales. For example, the young king and the star child may be read as accounts of changelings, while tales of undines and fishermen are particularly popular in Ireland, though common in all Indo-European lore. I'm like, I'm throwing that out there because I know that it was important to Oscar Wilde's son, that people don't forget, you know, that Oscar Wilde was Irish, that his family was Irish, that they are proudly Irish. But the connection is slightly too thin for my liking, though. And we will do an episode on changeling stories, specifically from ancient legends, mystic charms, and superstitions of Ireland that was written by Lady Jane Wilde. We are going to do an episode someday like about those things for sure. But the the connection that Oscar Wilde's fairy tales go back or are deeply connected to Irish folklore, like it's very, the evidence, yeah, it's just too thin for my liking. But I mean, we will explore that because it is important that, you know, 
Oscar Wilde is remembered as an Irishman. So I just want to say I'm sorry that this episode is not going to be about Irish folklore, but there is a much greater case to be made that Oscar Wilde's fairy tales were more influenced by Hans Christian Andersen's writings. Mm. It is not just me that is saying that. Inside, again, the Oxford Companion to Fairy Tales says, Wilde's literary fairy tales are influenced by the Brothers Grimm and especially by Hans Christian Andersen, whose moralized and sentimentalized versions of Scandinavian folktales are sometimes amplified and sometimes subverted by him, him being Oscar Wilde. The Nightingale and the Rose is a tough-minded comment on Andersen's The Nightingale, The Devoted Friend, an inversion of Great Klaus and Little Klaus, and The Fisherman and His Soul, a reversal of and complex comment on The Little Mermaid. And I know that we haven't done episodes on Great Klaus and Little Klaus and The Little Mermaid yet, but I do want to say that having, having read all of those tales there are very clear lines like they are very very clearly in conversation with each other which is fascinating and it's it's much more of a solid connection than you know the stories that they mentioned where they're like oh well you can kind of think of that character as like a changeling which is part of irish folklore and it's like you could But when they say that like the Nightingale and the Rose and the Nightingale are two stories that are in conversation with each other or the devoted friend is supposed to be an inversion of great class and little class, like those are very clear comparisons with each other. And so today we're going to be talking about the Nightingale and the Rose, which is a story by Oscar Wilde. And then I'm going to tell the Nightingale by Hans Christian Andersen. So back in the Sedna episode, when I teased this episode, I said... And I quote myself, Oscar Wilde's fairy tales are very artistic. I would say that they are more sophisticated and grown up than Hans Christian Andersen's literary fairy tales. And then I did say that that was probably a hot take and a one star review waiting to happen. So far, no one has atted me, which thank you. Um, So I... (laughs) So far. So far. I want to say that everyone is entitled to their own opinion, and you can absolutely try to persuade me, (laughs) but I am going to defend and clarify my position on saying that. I'm not saying that Hans Christian Andersen's stories aren't sophisticated or iconic. And also, I do want to recognize that Hans Christian Andersen wrote his tales nearly 50 years before Oscar Wilde, and also he was prolific. He wrote about 200 fairy tales, along with a lot of other things. And Oscar Wilde wrote eight (laughs) literary fairy tales. Um, And also Hans Christian Andersen's like range of literary fairy tales go from like the Snow Queen and Thumbelina all the way to like shorter stories that people know less about, like the snowman. And so, you know, Hans Christian Andersen had this like very wide range And so when I say that I think that Oscar Wilde's fairy tales are more sophisticated and grown up, I don't want that to sound like I am at all dismissing Hans Christian Andersen or like dissing him like in any way. He set the bar. He's at the bar high. So like it's it's okay. But that being said, I'm going to quickly grab a quote to back me up so that. (laughs) So it's not just you that's saying this. So it's. What makes Wilde's tales uniquely compelling is the elegance of their language combined with the strangeness of their content. 
Stylistically, they are perfectly articulated studies in artifice and surface, sometimes biblical in tone, sometimes filled with sensuous and mannered descriptions, most often prose poems in feeling. Yet this artificial, highly decorated prose is used to convey parables of egoism and altruism, of Christian self-sacrifice, as in the happy prince, the selfish giant, and the young king, or of the Christ-like artist, as in the nightingale, or to produce cautionary tales of selfishness and narcissism, as in the devoted friend and the remarkable rocket. Definitely read The Remarkable Rocket, like in your spare time. The protest against social injustice and inequality, the sympathy with the poor and oppressed, which was to figure in Wilde's soul of man under socialism, are directly or indirectly expressed in The Happy Prince, The Devoted Friend, and The Selfish Giant, and later in The Young King and The Birthday of the Infanta. While Wilde's anti-Puritanism and anti-conventionalism are reflected in The Nightingale and the Rose. Wilde's tales are less designed as works for children than as attempts to mirror late Victorian life in a form remote from reality and to embody the problems of the era in an ideal mode. Moreover, the creation of a fairy tale world enables Wilde to deal symbolically with social taboos and to reveal his repressed feelings and desires. So, when I say that Oscar Wilde's fairy tales are more sophisticated and grown up. I also mean that in a, these fairy tales that he wrote were not created for children. It wasn't really truly the intended audience. And if you read a collection of Oscar Wilde's fairy tales, you'll see that while they are probably okay to read to children, the main message of them isn't aimed at children. It's aimed at the adults who are reading the stories to the children. And he did that very purposefully. And so, yeah, it is like the themes that he is sometimes heavy handedly putting into the tales. It is it's very much aimed at adults and he's using the fairy tale format in a very specific way. Yeah. It's it's like, so again, I'm not dissing Hans Christian Andersen, like when I'm saying that respect, (laughs) I will put respect on his name. (laughs) So all of the tales I said, like there, I think there are eight, all of them are fascinating. And I wish that we could go through all of them. And like truly in the quote that I just read, when it's talking about the Christian symbolism and stuff, like, no, it's very super overt. In The Selfish Giant, there is a child that the giant was kind to during his life. And then when the giant is close to death, the child comes to collect him because it turns out that it was the Christ child the whole time, complete with like nail prints and like his hands and his feet. That's what I mean by overt. It's not. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The story of the young king, also very heavy Christian imagery. What's funny is the young king and the happy prince, they also reminded me of stories from the early life of the Gautama Buddha. But that might just be me noticing similarities because I don't know if Oscar Wilde was even like familiar in any degree with Buddhism. Right. And also what's funny is like those ones, the young king and the happy prince, they also are very like Charles Dickens-ish. It's like that same comment on the poor working and suffering to uphold the lives of the rich. Yeah. But those two stories and most of the stories have like very overt morals and lessons in them. The birthday of the Infanta reads like a child's length story of the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And none of these stories have very traditional happy endings, which 
Hans Christian Andersen also played with that as well in some of his stories, but these are very, like, you'll see. The ending of The Nightingale and the Rose will definitely make you go, like, oh, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to read this to my kids. (laughs) So anyway, that was a very long lead up into what we're doing, but Jeff is going to retell The Nightingale and the Rose because even though Hans Christian Andersen wrote his story first, what I want us to do is to look at The Nightingale and the Rose first and kind of have a discussion because I feel like this story says a lot as a standalone story and will lead to like an interesting discussion. Mm-hmm. But when when I retell The Nightingale, we'll have like even more to discuss and like pull out of it. So I'm excited. All right. The Nightingale. And the rose over black, the voice of a young student. (laughs) (laughs) I'm seeing it like very cinematically. She said she would dance with me if I brought her red roses, but there aren't even any red roses in my garden. (laughs) (laughs) Cut to his whiny little face staring out the window. (laughs) That's the feeling I got of this. Yeah, I know. It's perfect. Then you pull back to reveal a nightingale. The titular character (laughs) listening the whole time. And you go back to the kid and he's like, not a single red rose in my entire garden. And his whiny little crybaby (laughs) eyes filled up with tears. Okay, the the text actually says his beautiful eyes, but I guess. You're like, agree whatever, disagree. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you could tell, but I was not a fan of this kid from the start. And he goes on to say, he's like, oh, even though I'm like, such a smart little college boy that's read everything that all the wise men have written. And I've got all the secrets of philosophy are mine. My life sucks because I don't have a single stinking rose. And the nightingale, the sweet nightingale, a true poet at heart, sees this sad sack (laughs) of a student and thinks to herself, here at last is a true lover. I've sung about him every night and told his story to the stars. But now... I finally see him, like, for who he is, I guess. And she goes on to describe him physically. And pay attention to this description very carefully. These are direct quotes. His hair is dark as the hyacinth blossom. His lips are red as the rose of his desire. But passion has made his face like pale ivory. And sorrow has set her seal upon his brow. So, Katrina, fun fact. Hyacinths are usually, like dark blue to purple, sometimes pink. So it looks like our whiny college student is actually an anime character, which actually would explain (laughs) a lot about this story. No, like I thought, I thought like that was so interesting too, because it was like using the colors like black, red, and white, which we've like briefly mentioned before and like other tales about how those are like the three fairy tale colors, but also what you're pointing out, which is that like hyacinths aren't black or dark brown. Yeah. I mean, they they might be dark in color, but not a color of hair. But no, he's an yeah. anime character. I hadn't even thought of that. You're right. Yeah, that's canon. Also, Hyacinth is interesting, too, because of the fact that Hyacinth is named yep. after, you know, the mythological story. And that's about love and all uh-huh. sorts of stuff, too. It's relevant. I don't know if you have things to say about that later, but we'll just skip on by for now. So we have the Nightingale describing the student for us. And then the student goes on to spout some exposition because we got to know what's going on. And he's just up there talking. He's like, oh, the prince is having a ball tomorrow night. Oh, and my love, she's going to be there. And if I bring her a red rose, she said that she would dance with me until dawn. 
And then he like, you know, ceases with the expedition, just starts fantasizing at this point. He's like, oh, if I bring her a red rose, I'll get to hold her in my arms. If I bring her a red rose, she'll lean her head on my shoulder. And if I bring her a red rose, we'll hold hands and maybe, I don't know, kiss? But alas, there's no red rose in my garden. So instead, I'm going to sit all alone like a heartbroken loser. And the nightingale, hearing all this, says again, Here indeed is a true lover. What I sing of, he suffers. What is joy to me, to him, is pain. Which these are direct quotes because, like I said, Nightingale, poet, beautifully written. Surely love is a wonderful thing. It is more precious than emeralds and dearer than fine opals. Pearls and pomegranates cannot buy it, nor is it set forth in the marketplace. It may not be purchased of the merchants, nor can it be weighed out of the balance for gold. Wow. Nightingale's a fan of love. Yeah. And the student goes on to continue his sad fantasy about the ball. The musicians are going to bust out some absolute bangers at this ball. (laughs) My love is going to be dancing to the sweet beats of, I don't know, Doja Cat and Post Malone, (laughs) which I I couldn't even name a single Doja Cat song. But um, the only thing I know about her is that she brought the Mexican pizza back to Taco Bell. And for that, I love her. All right. (laughs) And I also know that Nyan Cat and Doja Cat are not the same thing, which has not always been the case. But I digress. Meaning that you haven't always known they were two separate things. For right. for a I second, I, for a I thought what you were saying was that it is not always. <laughs> they haven't always not been the same. Yeah, <laughs> they were. Doja Cat and Nyan Cat were the same thing until they split <laughs> off into their yeah. separate identities. Yes, that's what I meant. <laughs> anyway, so the musicians are going to be playing. His love is going to be dancing. She's going to twerk so beautifully that her feet will float up off of the floor. <laughs> Me too. And her milkshake is going to bring all the courtiers to the yard. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. <laughs> I may have had too much fun in my preparation. I'm loving it. I'm like, you know what? He needs to do even more episodes. (laughs) Um, But anyway, okay. Yeah. Her milkshake is going to bring all the courtiers to the yard. But unfortunately, she won't dance with me because I don't have a red rose. And with that, our sad boy student (laughs) flung himself down onto the grass and just started sobbing. Like Hans Christian Andersen and Charles Dickens' yard. Is exactly what I thought. And I was like, oh man, you know, and I didn't even know that this story was supposed to be throwing shade at Hans Christian. No, Anderson, no, no. So it's not, like it not fits. throwing shade. Not throwing shade. Okay. Critiquing? Yeah. We'll get For, there. We'll furthering get there. the conversation. So while this sad student is lying face down in the grass crying, a green lizard crawls up and is like, why is this dude crying? And then a butterfly flutters by and says, yeah, what's his deal? <laughs> And a daisy whispers over its shoulder to another daisy. Like, for real, though, is he good? <laughs> All the flora and fauna are super curious about what has gotten this kid so sad. I am going to be, like, so insecure now, wondering if, like, every creature that's, like, outside in my backyard is, like, looking at me like, <laughs> why is she this way? <laughs> they are. The flora and fauna about are always judging us. <laughs> every time I'm in my backyard crying, are they judging me? <laughs> the answer is yes. That's the thing I'm most concerned about when I'm in my backyard crying. Are the plants judging me? So the nightingale's hearing this conversation. She's like, okay, he's weeping for a red rose. And all the animals and plants are like, a red rose? That is stupid. Why is he crying over a red rose? And the lizard, who it is noted is somewhat of a cynic, (laughs) quote, laughed outright. Which one did it say was the cynic? The lizard. Of Of course course. the lizard's a cynic. Cold-blooded. But, you know, 
all these other animals continuing to judge this guy. <laughs> but the nightingale, like to herself, was like, nah, I get it though. And so she started pondering in her own heart the mystery of love for a little bit. And then she looked up into the sky and took off and started soaring through the garden. And in the middle of the garden, she sees a beautiful rose tree. So she swoops down, lands in his branches, and says, Give me a red rose and I will sing you my sweetest song. To which the tree shook its head and said, My roses are white. Which, I mean, you know, did I mention that the nightingale is colorblind? Because apparently the nightingale is colorblind. <laughs> his hair is as black as hyacinth. <laughs> oh my gosh, that explains so much. <laughs> I looked it up at this because I was like, you know, it's famously dogs are colorblind. And I was like, are birds colorblind? Apparently, no. Apparently, most birds are, like, super color-sided. Like, they have, like, yeah. ultraviolet detecting, like, cones and rods or whatever in their eyes. So they can see way more yeah, colors than we have. Yeah, because flowers are way more colorful than we can perceive. Yeah. Which, that's so upsetting. I want to be able to perceive yeah. how amazing something is. I want to have the vision of a mantis shrimp who also have, like, billions of colors that they can see. Anyway, so the tree goes on. My roses are as white as the foam of the sea, wider than the snow on the mountain, and even wider than the mound of cocaine on Tony Montoya's <laughs> desk. I thought you were going to be like, wider than Katrina in Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> wider than Katrina's legs in hey, mid-March. <laughs> <laughs> But the tree's like, okay, my roses are white, but you should go see my brother. My brother that hangs out, you know, around the old sundial. Maybe he can help you. So Nightingale flies over to the rose tree that's growing around the old sundial, lands in the branches, and says once again, give me a red rose and I will sing you my sweetest song. But this tree also shakes its head. And it says, oh, sweet Nightingale, my roses are yellow. As yellow as the hair of the mermaiden who sits upon her amber throne. Yellower than the daffodil that blooms in the meadow before the mower comes with his scythe. Yellower than the snow that your parents warned you not to eat as a child. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you should go to our brother that grows under the student's window. And that rose tree can help you. And so the nightingale flows over to the rose tree that grows beneath the student's window thinking like, oh man, is this going to be embarrassing if the rose that I get is from right underneath his tree after he's been crying so much and now <laughs> not being able to get a red rose? Nightingale lands in this tree's branches and says, again, give me a red rose and I will sing you my sweetest song. But this tree also shakes its head and says, my roses are red. They're as red as the feet of a dove, redder than the great fans of coral that wave and wave in the ocean cavern. And redder than a baboon's oh backside. Gosh. Oscar Wilde did not say that. <laughs> okay, so the third thing was my own addition. I never could the have guessed. The other two were direct quotes. Oscar Wilde, no, listen. Oscar Wilde absolutely said whiter than Katrina's legs in mid-March. <laughs> <laughs> it just bothered my modern sensibilities that they were only listing two things. Like, I was like, it needs three. And then I was like, if I'm going to name a third one, it's definitely going to be a joke. And that works for, you know, rule of three. It for does. Some comedy. Subverting so, those expectations. Uh, thank you. This is Jeff giving like Oscar Wilde notes. <laughs> Me giving Oscar Wilde one of the funniest human beings ever to have lived on this planet and written down words. I'm giving him advice on humor. Uh, that's not a good look on me. That, that hubris anyway, though. Even though my roses are red, the winter has messed me up, man. <laughs> The winter chilled my veins, the frost has nipped all my buds, and broke my branches, so I have no roses this year. 
And the Nightingale's kind of dismayed by this. And it's like, all I want is one red rose. Only one rose. Is there not any way that I could get a red rose from you? Just one rose. Come on. And the rose tree's like, well, okay, fine. There is a way. But you know what? I'm not even going to tell you because it's, not going to lie, pretty gruesome. And the Nightingale's like, you know what? I'm not afraid. Just tell me. I'll do anything for love. But I won't (laughs) do that. But she will. But anyway, okay. So the tree is like, I'm sorry, I'm keeping you on the edge of your seats wondering, what is the way that you can get a red rose out of this tree? And so the tree goes on to say, it's like, okay, if you want a red rose, you must build it out of music by moonlight, which is like very poetic. The Nightingale's like, well, you know what? That's not so bad. And you must stain it with your own heart's blood. You must sing to me with your breast against a thorn. All night long you must sing to me. And the thorn must pierce your heart and your lifeblood must flow into my veins and become mine. It got very dark. Yeah, real fast. It's like, okay, macabre. (laughs) I regret asking you to tell me now. Is not what the nightingale said. That's what I would say. (laughs) Yeah, you're like, well, never mind. And then Jeff flew away. I flew away, but the nightingale's like, not all cool with it. She's like, um, it seems like death is like kind of a bit of a high price to pay for just one rose. And goes on to talk about, it's like, you know, people love life. You know, every life is dear to all. And goes on to talk about all the great things that you can do with your life. It's pleasant to hang out in the woods and the hawthorns smell so sweet and to see the bluebells in the valley and... They're talking about all these amazing things. You know, the moon is a, is a great pearl that sails through the sky. You know, again, the nightingale, poet, absolute poet, yeah. singer, goes on to beautifully describe all the great things you can experience in life and then says, yet love is better than life. And what is the heart of a bird compared to the heart of a man? And so she spreads her wings, flies off into the air and goes across the garden again, back to where the student was lying in the grass. And he had stopped crying, but the tears were not yet dry in his the text says, beautiful eyes, I say, whiny crybaby eyes. And the nightingale's like, hey, dude, be happy, be happy. You're going to get a red rose. Everything's going to be fine. I'm going to build it by, you know, music by Moon Knight. And then I'm just going to stain it with my blood and everything is going to be cool. You're going to get the red rose and you're going to get a dance with the girl of your dreams. And it's going to be fine. I'm going to stain it with my heart's blood. It'll be good. But all I want from you in return is for you to be a true lover, the true lover that is inside your heart. That's better than philosophy. You know, it's better than power. It's better than anything, you know, I want you to be that true lover. Even though this kid is like, I'm super smart because I read all them philosophy books in school. And student looks up from the grass and is listening to the nightingale, but can't understand a thing that it's saying. I imagine like in the movie version, it like cuts to, it's like the nightingale's like spouting this beautiful poetry. And then it cuts to his point of view. And he, it's just like, he's just got a confused look on his face. Hold on. I can do a way better bird sound than that. Well, I, I was impressed with the noise that you just made. And then you're like, I'm sorry. No, I can do better. Just cut this in in this place if it works. That's still kind of not my best, but. Uh, dude, I was super impressed. Dude, do you want to be funny as if I find like a <laughs> Just get a real, like an actual like nightingale. A nightingale. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> but do like have me doing it like poorly the first time. And they'd be like, no, wait, wait I could do better. And then you cut in the, the actual <laughs> nightingale. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah the the student doesn't understand a thing the nightingale is saying uh, and from the nightingale's perspective the nightingale says like for he only knew the things that were written down in books which it's like okay or he just didn't speak bird but i get what you're saying <laughs> but the oak tree 
who also has been listening this whole time, understood what the nightingale was saying and was very sad because the oak tree kind of was fond of the nightingale. The nightingale would, you know, build a nest in its branches and would hang out there. And so the oak tree said to the nightingale, it's like, please, will you sing me one last song? It's like, I'm going to be really sad when you're gone. So the nightingale sings to the oak tree and it says that her voice was like water bubbling from a silver jar, which is not something that I can imagine, but it sounds beautiful. When the nightingale finished her song, the student gets up and pulls out a notebook and a pencil and... He starts talking to himself as he's walking away through the grove and he's like being all judgy of the nightingale saying like, well, you know, she can sing pretty well, but has she got feeling? No, she's just like all those other artists who are all style, but they're not sincere. It's just all fake. She wouldn't sacrifice herself for someone else. She only thinks about music. Everybody knows that artists are just super selfish. Like, yeah, okay. I admit that she's a good singer. Great. But it's just really <laughs> sad that they don't mean anything by it and that it doesn't do anything of any practical use. And so he goes into his room and he lies down in his bed and he starts daydreaming of his love and falls asleep. So when the moon comes out, the nightingale flies to the rose tree and presses her breast up against a thorn and starts singing. And she's singing all night with the thorn getting pushed deeper and deeper into her breast and her, and her blood starts flowing out of her like onto the thorn into the rose bush. And so, you know, she's singing this song and she's first singing about the love that blossoms between a boy and a girl. And, and there on the topmost branch of this rose tree, a rose starts blossoming, like one petal at a time, just as the song is going along. And at first it's like pale color, but as it gets closer to morning and as the nightingale keeps singing and more of her blood is like pouring out into the tree, it starts taking on the color of the rose more and more and more and more. And the tree, the sadistic tree... <laughs> cries to the nightingale and is like, get closer to the thorn, get closer. It's like, or, you know, the day's going to come before you're finished and the rose is not going to be done. It's not going to be red enough for this guy to take to the girl. And so the nightingale presses closer to the thorn and starts singing louder and louder. And she's singing, you know, about like love and the passion that bursts forth in the soul of people that are in love. And the, the rose starts turning pink. And then it's like, you know, she's comparing this pinkness to like the flush in the face of a, of a husband when he kisses the lips of his bride and... The thorn, you know, is getting deeper and deeper, but it hadn't yet reached her heart. So it says that the rose's heart still remained white because only this nightingale's blood can pour out this crimson color into the heart of a rose. And so the tree again is crying like, get closer, get closer. The day's going to come before the rose is finished. So the nightingale presses closer and closer until the thorn touched her heart. She felt a you know, pain that shoots through her and her song just gets like wild and crazy. And she starts singing about love perfected by death and that love that doesn't die in the tomb. And just then the rose turns this absolutely beautiful crimson color and the nightingale's voice starts to grow fainter. The wings begin to beat and her eyes kind of go glossy and her song gets fainter and fainter until she kind of feels like a choking in her throat. With one last burst of music, she falls from the tree just as the rose opens up in its beautiful red color. Super sad. Super, super sad. And the tree is excited. He's like, look, look, the rose is finished. That's great. Great job. But of course, the nightingale didn't answer because she was in the grass with a thorn in her heart. And so at noon, the student opened his window and looks out and he's like, oh my gosh, what great luck. Here's a red rose. And he's like, it's the most beautiful rose that I've ever seen in my whole life. Quote, I'm sure it has a long Latin name. And then he leans down and plucks it, which is really funny. That sounds like something that someone that thinks they're really smart would say. 
Uh, like, yeah. it's so beautiful. It must have a really, really long Latin name. But I don't know what that Latin name is or would be. So he's got this rose and he puts on his hat and he starts running up to the professor's house because, I don't know if you know this, it was the daughter of the professor, his professor, that he was in love with. And she's there uh, sitting in the doorway and she is winding blue silk onto a reel, which I thought was interesting just because, you know, got some textile stuff going on there. And then a little dog was at her feet just because. So the boy comes up to her and he says, you said that you would dance with me if I brought you a red rose. Here is the reddest rose in the whole world. You will wear it tonight next to your heart. And as we dance together, it will tell you how much I love you. But the girl frowned. And she said, that rose isn't really going to go with my dress. It literally says that. I just want to say, it literally says that. Yeah. It sounds like it's a joke. It's not. That like Jeff made up and it is a joke that Oscar Wilde. Actually put in there. Yeah. It's so petty after all the beautiful things that just happened so literally direct quote (laughs) i'm afraid it will not go with my dress and besides the chamberlain's nephew has sent me some real jewels and everybody knows that jewels cost way more than flowers which so much to say about that but i hate this girl more than i hated this kid um and the student was not expecting this response and he gets really mad and he says like you are so ungrateful. You are so rude. Like, I can't believe that. And he throws the rose into the street where it goes into a gutter and then a cart that's driving by like runs over it and crushes it. And the girl's like, oh my gosh, you're the one that's rude. Uh, who do you think you are? You're just a student. Uh, you don't even have silver buckles on your shoes like, <laughs> like the Chamberlain's nephew has. Why would I waste my time with someone that doesn't have silver buckles on their shoes? <laughs> She got up from her chair and goes into the house. Jeff, personally, I also just like, if you don't have silver buckles on your shoes, like, don't even talk to me. I mean, yeah. Me, same. I get it. And like all spurned lovers, suddenly, in a flash, someone who was just so obsessed with love one minute ago absolutely hates it the next. And the student walks away and he's like, what a silly, stupid thing that love is. Love is not useful for anything. It's not as useful as logic. Love doesn't prove anything. It's always telling you lies. It's telling you things that aren't going to happen. It's making you believe things that aren't true. You know what? Love is super unpractical. I hate love. I'm just going to go back to studying philosophy and metaphysics and forget all about this garbage that is love. And so he returned to his room and pulled out a great dusty book and began to read. Oh my gosh. Seriously, just like one of the most heartbreaking moments, and I love the way that Oscar Wilde wrote that moment, is putting that line, and everybody knows that jewels cost far more than flowers, immediately recalling to our mind exactly how much that flower cost. And then in the very next sentence, we as the audience see the student throw the rose into the street, and it gets hit by a car. Yeah. And it seriously, it's like, because obviously the student in the story didn't know. Right. And the girl also doesn't know how much to them. It's like, oh, flowers are flowers are flowers, like whatever. And so it's like for Oscar Wilde to recall to our mind, like in that sentence, that jewels cost far more than flowers. And then for us to watch that priceless flower get chucked into the gutter and hit by a cart. I'm like, brilliant yes. writing. Devastating. So heartbreaking. This was such a beautifully written story. Like, I, everyone should read it. I made a lot of jokes. I wanted to just read it verbatim because of how, like, beautiful it was. Oh, yeah. So you should definitely, it's definitely worth a read. 
But yeah, oh my gosh, that moment was so heartbreaking. When you see it, he's like, uh, he gives, he's holding the flower out to her. And then it's like, but the girl frowned. And it's like, uh-oh. Like immediately my heart yeah. like sunk into my stomach. I was like, oh man, this is not going to be good. Yeah, because like from the beginning of the story, you know, we're just hearing the boy's point of view. And it seems very like cut and dry, yeah. right? Like it seems like he's like, oh, if only I had a flower. And in like fairy tales, you know, if somebody's crying outside underneath yeah. a magical tree because they need like a dress. They get magical dress, they go to a ball, they marry yeah. a prince, happily ever after. And that's kind of the expectation of like, we believe yeah. him. It's funny too, because it's like, another fascinating thing about this is like, the story really is for most, like the beginning part from kind of the Nightingale's point of view. Like we're, we're yeah. following the Nightingale. The Nightingale's the main story, the main character for the beginning. Because we're seeing the Nightingale's watching the boy and then she's going and doing something. And then we kind of follow the boy after that. Yeah, because I like how you started the story where you're like, it's black because it, it is like out, out of nowhere, this voice yeah. you're hearing because it's the first yeah. line of the story is like she said that she would dance with me if I bought her, brought her. Yeah. And it's one of those things, too, is where it's like you don't even consider because it's in this fairy tale format of like something that is also popular in modern day of like the unreliable narrator. Like we have yeah. no reason to believe that this narrator, you know, it's not that they're lying to us, but it's like he doesn't know. Again, he's kind of been fooled. Yeah. To believe that if he gets her a rose, like he absolutely believes it. But just because he believes it doesn't make it true. Yeah. Or even it's like she might have said that right. to him, knowing that red roses were going to be impossible to yeah. find. And what she meant was like when hell freezes over. <laughs> exactly. Like, if you can do this impossible task, then I'll dance with you. Yeah, that's possible too. Yeah. But again, it's like, you know, he took it literally. Yeah. And, and we had no reason yeah. to not believe that. Yeah. And so, yeah, you're right. When it gets to that point where it's like the line that's like, she frowned. You're like, this, this isn't going to go out how I thought it was going to go. Because we just like experienced that deeply moving sacrifice yeah. that was made. And the whole story up to this point is kind of like, it is very like affirming of love. You know, the nightingale's like, yes. oh my gosh, this boy's a true lover. But but also at the same time, in the same way that it's like, from the beginning, I was kind of annoyed by the student. <laughs> like it sort of is setting up yeah. like, oh, the student, the fact that you're annoyed by the student, I don't think is an accident. You know, it's like, yeah. wow, this student is being a little dramatic and ridiculous. And then, but the nightingale is like, oh my gosh, this is wonderful, which should tell you something about the nightingale's like judgment, you know, like the nightingale believes in love so much and also says, and it's kind of, I don't know, in the, when I was reading it, the line where she says like, oh, and a, a bird's. Like, what worth is a bird's heart compared to the heart of a man? Which, like, to some degree, okay. But, like, when you're a bird that can talk and think and, um, and <laughs> you know, talk poetically about the joys of love and life, like, you know, I, I begin to disagree with that, like, statement. Like, if I had to sacrifice a bird in real life to save a human being's life, uh -huh. absolutely I would do it. But this bird's not just a bird, you know? It's like... I, I really want to focus in on, like, what you just said because I find that fascinating. Okay. That... Like, basically, like, what you're saying is, like, this bird has the capability to perceive love and beauty and, joy, like, is able to perceive this, like, magnitude of what's beautiful about, like, existing in the world. They're capable of, or this bird is capable of, like, perceiving that. And so when she says, like, what is the heart of a bird compared to the heart of a man? What you're also, like, reading into that is, like... But you are a bird that's capable of like perceiving that 
is now you're reversing the question of like, if you're an individual that can perceive the beauty in the world, what is your heart compared to that of a person who can't? Yeah, yeah. Which that is interesting. That well, and I'm like, it's such an interesting question. I hope that we kind of re-examine that after I tell the other story yeah. because of what we're about to find out. Oh, about I'm so intrigued. I want to just stop this discussion yeah. and go to your, yeah, yeah, your yeah. thing now. Yeah, no, I know. Because I'm like, oh, what you just said is like so beautiful. But going back to the story, because I, I like talking about also like the the love that's inside yeah. of this and or like the message that the story seems to be saying about love. Yeah. Because I, I think this story by itself, there's so much like to say about yeah. love and um so, so much cynicism. Especially from that little lizard. <laughs> that little lizard. And then just like, you know, like at the end. Yeah, the ki- kid just being like, well, love sucks. I'm just going to study metaphysics instead. Yeah. And it's like when we just witness such like a beautiful act of love. And then he, the the boy at the end is like, his message that he received about love through that whole story is like, well, love is for losers. Yeah. Which, uh, back to what I was like kind of getting at, which like, <laughs> yeah, why there, so are, there, there yeah. are hints early on that there's like kind of this cynical view because it's kind of like this kid is annoying, but the bird thinks that he's great yeah. for being a true lover. And so the bird then, in my reading, I would like seemed very naive of like, like it was beautiful what she was saying. And I didn't even disagree with like the beautiful things that she was saying about love. The nightingale is a romantic. Yeah. Which, you know, I feel I, same, same nightingale. So I was with yeah. her, but also I'm like, wow, you're a little naive because I feel that same way about like myself uh, when it comes to like love and stuff like that too. Especially like my younger self when I was a young man uh, studying metaphysics and <laughs> philosophy. <laughs> But so, but it, it is so sincere. Like the nightingale is, maybe you could say it like comes off naive at worst, but it's like so sincere about how she feels yes. about Yes. And then the nightingale who is like admiring yeah. this young man for his like love that he has for this girl, she proves her love for this boy yeah. by like being willing to sacrifice herself for him to make him happy. When it turns out that his love was like not really like true love. It was like this very fickle love that was, I mean, it was all a fantasy to begin with, you know what I mean? Which is interesting that it's like, he was off yeah. daydreaming and fantasizing about what things would happen even in the, like in a bad way. But like that would all be avoided if I had this red rose, which wasn't even true, but he's so like, you know, I mean, granted, I think he should give up at that point. Cause it's really clear. The girl is not interested but yeah, and she's she's obviously a person who is undeserving of the love that he's willing right. to give her, which is also interesting because it's like the student is undeserving of the love that the nightingale was willing to give him. Yeah, because it's like even then, you know, which again, we have knowledge that he doesn't that this bird like bled her heart into the tree to make this rose for him so it's like you know if he well he, who knows if he knew but it's like you know are you, yeah and it's like he ha- he has no understanding yeah. of the sacrifice and so yeah it's like we we forgive him right. for kind of not knowing but also at the same time like he gives up so easily on love that 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 isn't yeah noble there's like either. another there's another reaction that he could have had that would have been like you know, better and more satisfying and affirming of like love as a great thing with him. If it was like, like she turns him down and he's like, oh, well this, you know, rose is so beautiful. It deserves to be given to a soul that can match its beauty. I'll hold on to it until I can find that person. Obviously this is not the one. You know what I mean? Like that could have been a way that went, but didn't. Yeah. And for a reason, because it was written by someone to make a specific yeah. point. I'm like, oh, or even another like beautiful moment would have been if he carried the flower 
home with him and like gave it to like yeah. his mother, who is also probably a person in his life who has sacrificed yeah. for him because of her yeah. love, like for him. Something like that would have been slightly more satisfying. He goes back and sees this nightingale that he's like heard her songs for like a long time because Nightingale's been watching him, sees that it's like lying dead in the grass yeah. and is like, oh, this is so sad. Buries the nightingale and leaves the rose like on top of where he buries the nightingale. That would be a nice little like poetic ending to yeah. it too, you know? That would have, yeah, that also would have been so beautiful. Once again, we're telling Oscar Wilde, you done goofed, sir. <laughs> you needed to write this better. No, just kidding. <laughs> well, yeah, what we're saying to Oscar Wilde is like, your story hurt yes. our hearts. And Oscar Wilde be like, good. That was, I intended to do that. I'm glad. Remember that sadistic (laughs) rose bush? That is me. I want to hurt you like that rose bush hurt that nightingale. Because I thrive off of it. (sighs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, no one. Yeah, it's like such a beautiful story. Such a sad story. It is. Because it, it, it is very cynical. Yeah. On purpose, yeah. very much. And like I'm on purpose. a little, I'm a little torn about what I think mm-hmm. like the purpose is. I'm torn between like, yeah, is it is it doubly cynical? Like it's cynical in like the boy just like gives up on love and goes to study metaphysics, and it's like, wow, look how stupid that is. Or is it like, yeah, which is kind of what I lean towards, knowing Oscar Wilde. But it's like, or is it like at face value yeah. being like, look, people, love makes you stupid, and love does kind of suck. You know, which is like not untrue, but also it's not, yeah. it's not true that you, that should make you just give up on it because the story does show yeah. that love does exist in a very powerful way in the nightingale sacrificing herself. And I think like this story, it is capable of having like more yeah. than one meaning. And it's definitely, I mean, that's what I think is like very sophisticated Agreed. about it is that like there is, there's a lot in it. It's very short, yeah. but there is a lot in it. And if you reread it again, one lens that I would say is another interesting way to like look at the story and like read it is inside of the conversation of like the enlightenment versus like mm. romanticism. Which was a conversation that Hans Christian Andersen was also like going over. And we talked a lot about that in um, The Snow Queen. And this story too, you have like the student who keeps, they keep going back to this like philosophy, philosophy, philosophy. And like, I'm, I'm a learned person reading my smart people books. I'm going after the professor's Mm. daughter. Very much this like enlightenment, science is everything. We need to blah, 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 blah. And then you have like the nightingale who like keeps talking about love. And nature and beauty. Yeah, nature, the beauty inside of nature that her song, her like beautiful little like nature song. And and she's talking about like, oh, life is a beautiful thing because, and she names like a list of yeah. like nature elements that are like out there. And that's why I like lean so hard into like, you could say she's a romantic. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like, yeah, no, yeah, very much. (laughs) Which I did think it was interesting too. I mean, it's like kind of in some ways obvious, but it was like, she was, like you said, when she was talking about beauty, she would talk about like the natural things of the world, like the color of the moon, the color of the sea foam, the color of the snow that has been peed on. No, wait, that was me. The color of the snow that hadn't been peed on. (laughs) You know, like all these very natural things. And then again, contrast that with, you know, like the professor's daughter who's talking about like, 
jewels, which again, I understand are natural. They're rocks, very pretty rocks. But it's like when there are jewels and gems, yeah. they've been cut and processed by people to look especially beautiful. The silver buckles on the shoes, like something that has been made to go yeah. on this thing that has also been made by human beings. And yeah. separate thing, going back to, there's a couple things like knowing that this is connected to Hans Christian Anderson. Interesting, again, with like mm-hmm. the talking trees, the talking flower trees we talked about in the Snow Queen. That was a very big thing. Yeah. And then also this whole idea of like, we've talked about with Hans Christian Anderson, this whole idea of like exploring like religion, specifically Christianity and how that yeah. like was kind of his thing, you know, like Christianity and religion versus science that, yes. that Hans Christian Anderson yeah. went on about a lot. And then here we've got like philosophy versus like nature. And this yeah. nightingale sacrificed her life and bled out on a thorn for yeah. on behalf of this other person. It's like, oh, yes. it's not too hard to see how this is like, could be read through a, a, the lens of Christianity as well. Uh, yes. Rather absolutely. than like romantic love, yes. you know. <laughs> absolutely. I thought you were going to go back to uh, the hyacinth flower. We can. I did think that was fascinating. Like for a second when you when you were when you were like going back to like Hans Christian Anderson and I was like, oh, yeah. But no, I I've, I do want to like dwell just for a second on like what you said about like the bird being kind of like a yeah. Christ figure where it's like. A thorn when like Christ had like a crown of thorns and, uh, you know, like he was like his body was uh-huh. pierced by like nails and like he. Yes. Like that is very much there of like that kind of has like a Christian feel to it. And it's like it does. The only way that it could have been more is if it was a dove rather than a nightingale or something, you know, like. Yeah. And. Here's the other thing. So not hyacinth, but I noticed mm-hmm. this as well, which was, again, was in my mind knowing that it's related in some ways to Hans Christian Andersen. Like the trees are describing sea foam as one of the things that it's comparing beauty to. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The hair of a <laughs> mermaiden, which I don't know about you. Um, I've never seen a mermaiden, but apparently they have yellow hair. And then like the first thing of the next one was talking about like the red of the coral that grows in like the caverns. I was like, why is the first thing that there's all these trees are saying yeah. Related to a mermaid and their undersea palace and the fact that they turn to sea foam because they don't have a soul and they can't go to heaven. <laughs> yeah, especially especially when it's like when have these garden when have items seen the ocean? Seen <laughs> yeah, the ocean. I didn't know that you were ambulatory, <laughs> especially like sir. coral in the <laughs> sir tree. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. No. Like yeah. Some of the images it very much ed seriously. I hope I hope people do go and read some of these uh, like Oscar Wilde fairy tales. If you are familiar at all with um, like Hans Christian Andersen, there's a lot of stuff in there. In The Happy Prince, there is a little match girl. Oh, no. (laughs) Which I'm like, oh, my gosh. Which I'm like, is this me? Like the first time I was like reading through them, I was like, is this me reading a whole lot into this? Like, am I? And then when I was like researching and finding all this stuff where people were like, and especially in like the Oxford Companion to Fairy Tales when they're saying like, yeah, no, there's very clear mm-hmm. <laughs> lines. I was like, okay, I thought I was going like insane. Right at the beginning of the story when Jeff brought up the hyacinth, they're kind of like made like a reference back to like, oh, you know, like this hyacinth. We've said this before that we when we did the Snow Queen episode, there's a section where they are in a garden. And in that episode of the Snow Queen, we skipped 
a lot of what went in the garden. And then as a bonus episode, I went into the poems that the different flowers said and uh, related them to folk tales or mythologies that uh, Hans Christian Andersen was making reference to. And one of those stories was um, Hyacinth, which I'm not going to get too far into that story right now, but people should look up the story of Hyacinth. It is a mythology tale with the god Apollo. And it is like a homosexual love story that ends tragically. And as Hyacinth is dying, he's turned into a flower, the Hyacinth. And I do think it is interesting Mm -hmm. that Oscar Wilde just put in that little reference there. There's some stuff there, or at least it's like, you know, Oscar Wilde, famously queer. Like, yeah. The way I said that sounded it sounded like a like a like a marine in the sixties would have said it. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. Oscar Wilde, a famously queer artist. Better. I don't know if I'll be able to like attach those two uh, sound clips together, but maybe I'll leave in that whole part where I. <laughs> I like that he put in just that little reference in there because Oscar Wilde is like a famously queer artist. Yeah, as was Hans Christian Andersen. Obviously, there's like so much more probably that we can like say about this story and talk about it because it really is like it's so beautiful, even though it's so short, like there's so much to it. Oh, absolutely. Strong recommend to people to read it. And I hope that people like, you know, the the comment that I, you know, made back in the Sedna episode about Oscar Wilde and like the fairy tales, I do hope people like go and read them. I mean, this is one thing that it's like, I love about literary fairy tales. And you kind of mentioned this, Jeff, that you're like, oh, it was really beautiful. I wanted to like, just read it like out loud. And it's like, that is the thing with like, when you have somebody like an Oscar Wilde or Hans Christian Andersen who wrote, and even Hans Christian Andersen, like it's hard because like, his, it's probably even more beautiful than we realize because we're reading like a mm-hmm. translation of it. But it's like, even the translation, I'm like, literary fairy tales, especially when they're done by the incredible artists, they're so beautiful. The language is so yeah. rich. Like it's so gorgeous to read it. And you do want to be like, no, no, no. I don't want to even turn this into an, you know, oral fairy tale because some of the richness inside of it is going to be lost through my retelling of it. Or like some of the lines, Oscar Wilde is a deeply funny person. And some of like his humor is very subtle. Some of it's not <laughs> subtle. And then some of it is like very subtle. And sometimes it's funny how not subtle it is. And then sometimes it's funny because like, it's very subtle. He's a very funny person. And some of that is lost when you're out loud, just like retelling it, giving like a summary like of the story. So I really do hope people like read it. Agreed. So now I am going to retell uh, The Nightingale by Hans Christian Andersen. And just like a little bit of like a brief... History of the story, very brief history of the story. He was inspired, supposedly, by two things. He was inspired by a singer named Jenny Lind. She was known as the Swedish Nightingale. And Hans Christian Andersen loved her very much, had very strong feelings for this woman that she did not return for him. So this story, The Nightingale, according to um, Hans Christian Andersen's date book for the year 1843, he composed this story 
in two days. It was after he had gone to an amusement park and pleasure garden that had a Chinese motif in Copenhagen that had opened that mm. summer. He he was really taken by the setting of it, and that's what inspired it. And so if you reread this story of the Nightingale, you will just notice that he uh, he says some problematic things about Chinese people. And I just do want to point that out that 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 exists in the story, just so that you're not like opening up to read it. And you're like, Ooh, that sounds racist. And it's like, mm, yes, you're correct. But yeah, he was inspired by these gardens in Copenhagen. So the story starts off in China. As you know, the emperor is Chinese, and all of the people around him are Chinese too, which is just one of the weirdest <laughs> openings <laughs> for a story. I'm just like imagining just any other story like opening up where they're just like in this country, all the people, a majority of the people there are nationals of that country. I'm just like imagining like if I had started every episode of like the Thousand One Nights episode like that <laughs> in Yemen, <laughs> as you know. But yeah, I I love that as a beginning for a story. But then you know he kind of backs up in this way where he's like. It's been many years since this story that I'm about to tell you. So I love that it's almost like once upon a time in a land far away, but it's once upon a time in China, which is very far away. But anyway, I'm going to quote the next sentence of the next paragraph. The emperor's palace was the most beautiful thing in the world. It was made entirely of finest porcelain, which was very costly and so brittle and fragile that it was dangerous even to touch it. The entire palace was made of porcelain. But yes, no, he means that because he's setting up this. The setting of this story is supposed to be very about like the opulence. And so but I just think that that is like a great way to set that up, uh -huh. this up. It was the most beautiful thing. It was made of porcelain. If you touched it, it would break. That's how fragile it was. And it's like, you shouldn't make a house out of that then. But again, it's the opulence. But if you live in a porcelain house, you shouldn't throw stones, as the saying goes. Correct. And you better hope that it never like hails outside. But anyway, there was once an emperor who lived in a palace. And one of the things that this palace had, besides being very opulent in its own way of construction was it had these extraordinary vast gardens they were extremely curated gardens very controlled every little detail in the garden had been carefully thought out by the gardener himself um but then it also says that the gardener himself didn't even know where it ended <laughs> so it's like it was very well thought out but also it was out of control because it was so big and basically, you know, the gardens kept growing and growing like bigger and bigger and like more opulent and well-designed. But then at the edge, there was a bit of wooded area that was uncontrolled nature. And then there was this great lake and pond that people love to sail their boats on. So out on that water was a fisherman who went out on that lake to catch fish every day. That's how he made his living. At night, when he was reeling in his nets, he would always sit and listen to this nightingale that would be singing on the edge of the lake. And every night he would just like sit and listen and say, heavens, how beautiful it is. And it was just this little something that was like just such a pleasure to him. Well, travelers started to come and visit this kingdom. 
They would go to the emperor's palace to walk around and see just like, oh, the opulence that was there. And sometimes, you know, they would even, you know, be entertained at the emperor's court. And they would go on these long walks through these beautiful gardens. And sometimes if people were walking in the evening and they had gotten far enough out to the wooded area, they would get to hear the nightingale singing in the trees. And everybody would always pause and just sit and listen to like the beautiful song of this bird out in the wild nature. They enjoyed it so much that they would say, this is better than anything, which I think is like a line that's very important. So make a mental note. They admired everything very much, especially the palace and the gardens. But when they heard the nightingale, they all said, this is better than anything. And so when they would get home and describe it to other people, they would always mention this nightingale and the beautiful songs in the garden that you could hear. It says that learned men started to write about it in their books about traveling to China, that they would say, oh, if you were in this town, make sure to go to this palace. If you're in China, make sure to go and check out this palace and go to the gardens. And definitely you'll want to hear this nightingale sing. It's the most beautiful thing above anything else. Poets were writing it in their poems. And pretty soon, all of these books and poems and such that were being like written about it found their way back to the emperor. And so one day, the emperor, sitting in a golden chair reading a book that he had received, read in there, but the nightingale is the best of all. And he was like, wait, what? The nightingale? Why have I never heard of this? What is this? Like, I've never heard of this. Is there such a bird in my kingdom, in my own garden? And I've never even heard of that. That's crazy. So he called all those gentlemen in waiting and he was like, have you guys heard of this nightingale? And they're like, what? What, what are you talking about? Please don't get mad at us. And, you know, so he's like, can you find out what, what's up going on with this nightingale? Have you heard about this? Oh, no, sir. We've never heard anything. And he's like, well, go and find out. So they went all over the castle and were like, have you guys heard about this nightingale? Do you know what this nightingale is? Have you heard of this? And everybody who was working there of any important rank was like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. We spend all of our time inside of the palace. We have no idea what you're referring to. And this really interesting line that strikes me reading it is the emperor said, I wish it to appear here this evening to sing to me. The whole world knows what I possess and I know nothing about it. People not wanting to get in trouble are trying to like mm -hmm. figure out like, where is this nightingale? What is this nightingale? And they're like, you know what? Books often, they, they make up like a lot of things. They invent a lot of things. Maybe this is somebody's <laughs> like imagination. And the emperor is like, but the book in which I read it was sent to me by the powerful emperor of Japan. Therefore, it cannot be untrue. Which I thought was really interesting just because I know that... The emperor of Japan lies all the time. Just kidding, sorry. No. <laughs> Japan... And the Danish people have had trade routes with each other longer than I think anybody else in Europe. Wow. I'm pretty positive that like Japanese art even like inspired a lot of like the impressionist painters. Interesting. Yeah. And so I thought that was really interesting that Hans Christian Andersen would put that in the book that he would be like, no, I got this from the emperor of Japan. Therefore, it can't be untrue. Because <laughs> it was like, he's, there are things that he says that are kind of like not great towards Chinese people, but then he like includes like that sentence in there. Yeah. I thought that was like interesting. And so the emperor is like, no, I insist on hearing this tonight. I want this right now. Everybody give it to me. So the, you know, gentlemen in waiting, the people of the court are like going around trying to like figure it out. And finally they found this poor little maid in the kitchen who was like, what? Oh, the nightingale? Yeah, no, I know it really well. Like 
my mother is sick and she lives kind of like on the edge of the woods. And I go to her every couple of nights to bring her some food to like go and visit her. And so every time I'm out there, I hear the nightingale. And they were like, well, you have to show us. So the emperor didn't go out into the woods with them. He stayed there, but a bunch of like, you know, his court went out with this little kitchen maid and they started walking and they heard this cow beginning to bellow. And they're like, oh, is that the sound of the nightingale? It is so melodious. <laughs> so I'm like, wow. What, they're like, what wonderful power in the voice of such a little creature. And the maid was like, no, no, that is a cow that is making that sound. And they're like, oh, okay. And then some frogs began to croak in the marsh. And again, they were like, oh, that's so beautiful. Like the tinkling of church bells. And the kitchen maid was like, no, those are frogs. What's wrong with you people? (laughs) And then finally they got towards like the edge of this garden and the nightingale began to sing. And the girl said, listen, listen, there it sits. And she pointed up at this bird and they look up at it and it's just this little gray bird among the branches. And they were like, what? It looks so common. It looks so plain. And they even said, I thought that was a funny line. They're like, seeing so many grand people must have frightened all of its colors away. And the little kitchen maid calls up and says, little nightingale, our gracious emperor wishes you to sing to him. And the nightingale says, oh, with great pleasure. And immediately starts, you know, like, like warbling and singing its beautiful song. All of the court who had come out were like, oh my goodness, like look at its little throat, how like active it is. And like singing and the song is extraordinary. I've never heard anything like this. This bird will be a great success at court. And the nightingale said, should I sing again to the emperor? And then the kitchen maid had to explain to the nightingale, oh no, no, he's not here. Like he's back at the palace. Would you be able to come and perform back at the palace. And the nightingale said, I sound best among the trees, but I guess so. And flew along with them back to the palace. The palace was kind of being like prepped and prepared for this very great guest of honor to come and perform. I guess it wasn't really a guest of honor because it very much the emperor was seeing it as like a possession that he already Mm. owned. And so when they flew, when they flew, when the nightingale flew to the palace with them, when they got to the emperor's reception room, he was sitting up in a grand throne and he had a golden rod that was affixed to the wall for the nightingale to perch itself on. And the whole court was assembled so that they could, you know, be part of this like festivity. And the nightingale began to sing. The birds sang so delightfully that the emperor's eyes started to tear up and started like rolling down his cheeks because he was so moved by the beauty of what he was hearing. When the bird was done singing, the emperor was like, that was so beautiful. I would like to honor you by giving you this gold necklace to wear around your neck. And the nightingale was like, no, no, no. Like, I don't need gold or like awards or anything like that. I've seen tears in the eyes of the emperor. That is the richest reward, seeing you so moved by Mm. my song. You know, the emperor was like, wow, that was like incredible. That was wonderful. And now I want you to stay in my court forever. And so he took the nightingale and he put it into a cage (laughs) and was like, oh, but don't worry. I will still allow you your liberty because I will let you go out twice a day and once at night as long as it had ribbons tied around its legs and 12 footmen (laughs) accompanying 
this like the bird. absolute definition of freedom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, oh, perfect. Exactly. Exactly what everybody wants to have had. So every night the nightingale was kind of made to perform for the king or for the emperor. And it wanted to do that because, you know, it loved singing and doing that, but also wasn't enjoying being locked up all the time. But pretty soon word got around about this like famous nightingale that you could come and sing perform. Everybody in the town was had felt so much pride of like having this nightingale in their midst. And it says 11 cheesemongers children were named after it, but not one among them could sing a note. <laughs> Which I like hilarious. Just again, Hans Christian Andersen also has a capacity for, you know, these funny little little mm. aside. So after a while, this package arrived for the emperor and he was like, oh, is this another book about how wonderful this nightingale is? And he opened up the package and pulled it out and it was an artificial nightingale. It says exactly like the living one, except that it was studded all over with diamonds and rubies and sapphires. When the little artificial bird got wound up, it could sing one song that was like the song the real one sang, and it would wag its tail, which glittered with silver and gold. The emperor saw that it had a little ribbon tied around its neck, and he like looked at this little tag that was with it. It says, the emperor of Japan's nightingale is very poor compared to the emperor of China's. And so it was mm -hmm. a gift from like the emperor of Japan, just being like, like, oh, here's something that I had made like for you, because I'd heard such wonderful things about you know, your nightingale. Here's this like artificial one, which is a poor substitute for what you truly have. But everybody, when he pulled it out, they're like, oh, it's so beautiful. It's amazing. It's incredible. Oh, we should make the two birds sing together. So they wound up the artificial one and let it start singing. And the other nightingale started to try to sing with it. And it said, the real nightingale sang in its own way. And the artificial one could sing only waltzes. <laughs> and it was just singing, you know, like one yeah. particular song. And so, you know, the music master was like, oh, well, you know, we can't fault the artificial bird because it's singing perfectly in time, correct every single time. We can't fault the discordant sound on the artificial bird. Ergo, the one that's the mm -hmm. real problem is the real bird. You could wind up the artificial one and it would sing the same song every single time. It was nice and predictable. And people were like, oh, that's really, really cool. I love how you can do that. After they had done that, you know, like several times, it said like 33 times, like in a row, they turned to look and see what had happened to like the real bird. And there was an open window and the bird had flown away, which I'm like, yeah, how long had that bird just been waiting for them to be distracted enough to let him go? But yeah, everybody was, you know, the emperor was kind of offended that the bird had just like left. And they were like, oh, that bird was so ungrateful anyway. It was so ungrateful. And they're like, well, but luckily we still have the best bird of all, which is this artificial one. So, you know, they kept winding it up and playing it. And everyone was like, this is so beautiful. We should have other people come to listen to it, too. And so people would come from the town to, like, listen to this bird perform. And everybody praised it a lot. But interestingly, when the poor fisherman came to hear the artificial bird perform, he said, it sounds very nice. And it is very nearly like the real one. But there's something wanting. I don't know what. And so the nightingale got officially banished from the kingdom 
for, you know, rudely just like leaving. And the artificial bird was placed on a silken cushion, always sitting close by the emperor so that he could play it whenever he wanted it. And so things went on like this for about a year until finally one day when the emperor was winding up the bird to sing, suddenly it made a sound and then the wheels inside of it stopped spinning and the music was no more. And the emperor, obviously very upset, you know, jumped out of bed and sent, it says for the private physicians that knew nothing about fixing (laughs) this artificial bird. It's like, yeah, you're going to need to get some mechanics. And so, you know, they had like watchmakers come and work on it. And the watchmaker was somehow able to get it to play once every once in a while. And so it became this kind of very special thing that only on a very special occasion would they wind it up once and kind of, you know, let it go. And five years passed like this slowly the emperor started to get sick. Everybody saw him getting paler and colder and paler and colder. And finally, the men of the court, they thought that he was already dead. They all, it says they all ran off to go and pay their respects to their new emperor (laughs) before that one was even dead and in the ground. They were like, oh, time to turn our allegiance really fast to make sure that we always (laughs) are kissing the right butt. So the emperor was laying in bed, not quite all the way dead. And he looks up above him and he sees all that is sitting next to him is this like artificial bird on this little pillow. Then he feels like a weight going down on his chest and he looks up and it's death sitting on his chest. And death is wearing his gold crown. And death is also holding the emperor's golden sword and his imperial banner. As the emperor, who's like laying there slowly dying, like is looking around, he's seeing, and it's like this really like interesting moment in the story because he's looking around at these faces that were looking in on him of, it seems like ghostly like apparitions. Mm. And it says some were hideous, others gentle and pleasant, and they were all representing the emperor's good and bad deeds. And it says, which now looked him in the face as death was weighing him down. So death was basically like pointing at these different memories. And he's like, oh, do you remember this moment in your life? Do you remember this one? And the emperor is getting like more and more and more terrified. And the sounds of these like faces that were like the good and the bad deeds talking to each other, communicating with each other were scaring like the emperor. And he starts saying, crying out, saying like music, music. And he's like looking at the artificial bird, but he can't twist it. And he's like, music, music, play for me, please. Because he wants it to drown out Mm -hmm. the sound of all of these like memories, like coming back to him. But the bird without anybody to wind it up, said nothing. Death continued to fix the great empty sockets of his eyes upon him, and all was silent, terribly silent. But then suddenly, close by the window, there was this burst of lovely song that came in, and it was the living nightingale. Perched on a branch, it had heard the emperor calling out and had flown over to help him in his like hour of need. Death paused what it was doing and turned and listened to the nightingale also. 
and said, go on, little nightingale, go on, because death wanted to hear the song. It was so lovely. And the nightingale was like, oh, yes, of course, I will keep singing if you'll put down the gorgeous golden sword. And so death put down the golden sword and the nightingale sang and then he stopped and death was like, no, nightingale, keep singing. And he's like, oh, if you put down the imperial banner. So death puts down the imperial banner and the nightingale sings on some more and then the nightingale stops and death is like, no, 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 sing once more for me. And the nightingale says, I will if you'll take off the emperor's crown. And so death takes off the emperor's crown and the nightingale sings to him again. And his song was so beautiful. It says it brought death a longing for his own garden. And like a cold gray mist, he passed out of the window. And so when death was off the emperor's chest and had like gone away, the emperor sat up and was like, thank you. Thank you. You heavenly little bird. I'm sorry I banished you from my kingdom and you've charmed the evil visions away from my bed with your song. How can I ever repay you? And the nightingale was like, no, you have rewarded me. I brought tears to your eyes the very first time I ever sang to you and I'll never forget that. Those are the jewels which gladden the heart of a singer. But sleep now and wake up fresh and strong. I will sing to you. And the nightingale sang until the emperor went to sleep. And the next day when he got up, all of his attendants were shocked (laughs) that he was still alive. And the emperor, you know, basically was like, like, all of you are dead to me. No. (laughs) The emperor, you know, was back to being like as lively as ever. And um, he said to the bird, you must always stay with me. I'll break the artificial bird into a thousand pieces and you only have to sing to me when you feel like it. And the nightingale said, no, don't don't do any of that. I don't want like any of that. (laughs) I can't build my nest and live in this palace, but let me come whenever I like. Then I'll sit on the branch in the evening and sing to you. I'll sing to cheer you and to make you thoughtful too. I will sing to you of the happy ones and of those that suffer. I'll sing to you about the good and the evil which are kept hidden from you. The little singing bird flies far and wide to the poor fisherman and to the peasant's home, to people who are far from you and your court. And he said that he had the ability to fly all over the kingdom and learn about how the people suffered and what the king could do to help those people. And the emperor was like, oh, you're right. Like, that is true. And the bird said, but you must promise me one thing. And the emperor said, what? And he's like, tell nobody that you have a little bird who tells you everything. It will be better so. The emperor agreed and let the bird go. The ending of that story is very important, and I will tell you why. All right. (laughs) The nightingale is a symbol for an artist. Right. One, I mean, the ending. So, like, the importance of artists in any kingdom is to say things how they really Mm -hmm. are to represent things like as they really are to like show to like communicate what the ills are in the kingdom what needs to be fixed like where where the problems are it's not supposed to be artists job is not supposed to be to just please everybody to be locked up and told what to create or perform but they're supposed to be able to communicate with the people who are actually listening to the art. Mm. So when you think of the nightingale as like an artist in that story, it's really interesting looking at the message of it. Without that, I feel like the story is a little confusing, especially the end is a little confusing. 
Well, it also makes me wonder, it's like, okay, so the Nightingale is an artist. What is the fake Nightingale? I think the fake Nightingale is like fake art. It's the stuff that's just like, oh, this is created to just be beautiful. It's things that are created just to be like lovely, but they're false. Like they're, they're not really beautiful because they're not really like reflecting. Yeah, it's not saying anything. It's just there to look nice. Which so much stuff like inside of like the kingdom, it was form over function because even right at the beginning when they're talking about the palace, Mm -hmm. that it it was entirely made of porcelain and too dangerous to touch because it was so fragile. And it's like, well, then it's useless. (laughs) It's useless as shelter. (laughs) Yeah, useless. Yeah, for the function that it was supposed to serve. Like, useless. And that, like, art also can be made useless Mm -hmm. when it is just made to be pleasant. But also you have those same hints about the, like, the Enlightenment and the Romanticism. You have this, oh, what's manufactured versus nature, like, what's natural. And even, like, the fishermen, like, looking at, hearing the artificial bird and being like, I mean, it's beautiful, but like there's something missing about it. And like the thing that's missing about it is like it's not real. It's not like there's no soul yeah. to it. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm like now, I mean, my brain is stretching and struggling to try to now compare the the yes. two. Yes. What is so fascinating to me about the Oscar Wilde tale is that not not knowing that it is supposed to sit next to this story mm-hmm. or be in communication with this story you can still get so much out of the oscar oh, yeah. tale like we did yeah. like we were talking about like all that stuff but also when you think about the bird again as artist trying to live in a world with people who only want to think about like philosophy mm-hmm. and they're not focusing on like looking hard at the world or even like loving truly. And I do want to go back to that question that you asked. What is the heart of a bird compared to the heart Mm. of a man? But when you had said like, oh, but this bird that's able to like think and feel so deeply, it's like, what is the heart of an artist compared to the heart of a philosopher? What has more purpose in life? Mm -hmm. What is truly living? Because it's like artists can feel so, so deeply about the world around them, almost to the point where like other people, if they're thinking just very like uh, pragmatically, are kind of like, you are feeling so deeply and thinking so deeply that you are like torturing yourself. (laughs) And like, what's the point of living a life where, you know, you're having like existential crises or, you know, struggling with like, like, am I truly living a life worth mm-hmm. living? Like, what is th- the purpose of love? Yeah. If you're struggling there. So there's almost like this comparison of like, which is better to feel so extremely much to the point of like living your life in almost this like constant exquisite agony <laughs> or <laughs> to have a very like cold and pragmatic, you know, view of the world where like you're functioning, you're getting stuff done. And not feeling yeah. as much exquisite pain about the world Right, which you. is kind of like, you know, the nightingale felt so strongly that she died. Yeah. Like, and yeah, that's, 
it's also like, okay, the balance between, yeah, you feel stuff so strongly that you die, but now you're dead and you can't experience like the beauty of the world anymore. Like, so yeah, let's like find a place in between the two. So one place where you're not like, you know, killing yourself over it, yeah. but, the, uh, but a place where also you're not just like not seeing the beauty around you and you're not enjoying yeah. life. Or even it's like there are artists and I know Oscar Wilde saw people like this and like new people like this who would really suffer for their art. And it was like sometimes they were suffering for the sake of saying they were suffering for their yeah. art. And then then they would they might be able to make something that's so beautiful and like exquisite. But then the world sees it and is like, oh, cool. Uh, OK, oh, yeah. cool. Like, what is this compared to what is this flower worth alongside of jewels? Mm -hmm. And so it's like, okay, what's the point of sacrificing everything for your art? If it's like pearls before swine, if, if it really is like, it's not going to be appreciated. Is it still worth suffering for? Or in a deeply cynical view of it, should artists maybe not sacrifice their full selves yeah. for their yeah. art interesting i was not expecting this like hans christian anderson tale to be how it was it was so different than what i expected having the the oscar wilde one be first oh yeah no especially because it's like it was like oh and now we're weirdly like in a garden in china yeah. which again it was an interesting creative choice that he came up with after visiting a garden in copenhagen uh -huh. That he was like playing with this like idea of a land far away, but it literally being a land far right. away. But also it wasn't, it's not like it's a representation of, of like a true representation of China. Yeah. <laughs> or even like, you know, based on like a Chinese folk tale or something like that. Like, no, it was just, oh, what's a land far away, but like literally, oh, China. I was just in these gardens. Absolutely. It was a way to like make it what's the right way like yeah i mean to be a land far away but that is far away in the real world but also like a land that people probably were not familiar with that would be reading the stories so it's like it puts it in this different place like when you're doing fairy tales there's something like oh this is not i don't know like not real to an extent that it starts that way and like starting yeah. in such a unknown location with like kind of a strange like a palace made entirely of porcelain you know, like it, yeah. it does that same sort of thing where he was like, oh, this will be interesting to do it this way in like the real world instead of in a complete fantasy fairy tale. Yeah. World. What's also interesting to me about the Hans Christian Andersen, the Nightingale, is that I feel like the versions that I have seen turned into like picture books for children. Mm -hmm. The story is a lot more about kindness about like oh you don't want to be like the king and being selfish and keeping this beautiful nightingale to yourself because in the stories that i i feel like that i have that i heard like as a child it was more of like oh the emperor liked it so much that he took it and kept it in a cage just so that he could just like enjoy it when really like in the longer version or like the the actual translation of it instead of one that's turned into one like specifically geared yeah. for children it's like, no, the emperor, I mean, yes, he did. He did trap it and contain it, but he also wanted to show it off to people, but show it off as like his possession. Right. And then definitely, you know, the versions that I feel like I remember like reading like as a child at the end, there wasn't this like, oh, if you 
let me be free. I will communicate to you the good and the bad that's going on in your kingdom so that you'll be wiser. Right. That wasn't a part of it that was saved for kids. Like that's a part of it that's very that's a lot more of like a an adult theme being explored. And also I'm like, man, I'm gonna have to go back and look for a children's versions. I don't feel like I remember death sitting on the chest of the king when I was a child. But I'm like, did I block all that Sleep out? Sleep paralysis demon again. Yeah, no, for <laughs> real. <laughs> it was like, it's happening. And so it's also interesting to me that like this story is like more adapted. I mean, they did the same thing with um, like the emperor's new clothes where there are versions that are like a lot more simplified for like to teach a lesson to children to make the story even more of like for children. But this story is interesting when you look at the the bigger themes that were being explored by Hans Christian Andersen. I wish more stories, you know, people were reading fairy tales, both fairy tales and literary fairy tales as adults mm. and being like, wait, what was this person saying to adults? Because they really are like really rich in theme. Oh, yeah. And so often it's like kind of treated like, oh, that's something that's for kids. And it's like, oh, no. You definitely should be diving a little deeper into this story. Yeah, it's like lots of like, I don't know, movies and TV shows made for kids nowadays. Whereas like they're made by adults and yeah, they are intended for children's audiences, which isn't necessarily the case with these stories. But at the same time, like in the same way that these current day animators know that adults are going to be watching these movies because their kids don't go to movie theaters by themselves or like. I guess my kids put on plenty of TV shows and movies by themselves uh, since they figured out how to use the TV. But you know what I mean? Like, generally, it's like adults are going to be yeah, seeing these things too. So, like, we'll put in stuff that is meant for them. So it makes it like an enjoyable experience. Yeah. But also, like, it says stuff like you're like you're saying, like thematically, that goes way over people's heads. Like, you know, kids watching movies yeah. like Coco or a better example, probably. Uh, and more recent, which we haven't talked about for a while, but there was a good stretch that we were on with Encanto. You know, like. My kids love that movie, but it's like they do not get anywhere near the same thing out of that movie that I get out of that movie. Yeah. Or I was even going to say, I was thinking of Bluey, where like in six, in like a six or seven minute episode, like I'm curled up on the couch crying Uh from like the, the rich message that is like inside of an episode. And my kids like turn around and they're like, mom, why are you crying? And I'm like, this is really beautiful. That, you know, kids are growing up and turning into themselves and it's so wonderful. My kids are like, what in the world? Because, like, they didn't get that from the episode. What they got from the episode was like, oh, yay, fun times. And like, oh, we need to be nice to our siblings or like whatever. Like, oh, that looked like a fun imagination game. Yeah. And it, it like it completely goes over their head, the theme and why I'm bawling. But yes, no, in Kanto. Same thing. The kids don't understand the theme and why I am bawling every single time. Yeah. Yeah. Like these stories. Yeah. I like what you're saying is like, they're a lot like that where I feel like the Nightingale and the Rose, I'm way less likely to like read to my children because as a story, like as a narrative, it's rather boring. Uh huh. You know, because like, oh, there was this boy crying and he wanted a rose. And yeah. so this bird sacrifices itself to get a rose. And then the rose gets thrown into the gutter. It's like, oh, okay. That's a super interesting story, dude. But it is. <laughs> yeah, like my kids would be like, no, thank you. But like Hans Christian Andersen's The Nightingale, more likely, you know, to read that to the kids. And they would get what I just kind of described of, 
you know, what is inside of children's books of this story out of it. That's what they would get out of it. The main kind of the most accessible message out of it. But then like the themes of like, what is an artist's purpose? What What is an artist's job? Is it to please everybody all the time? Is it just to create beauty in the world? Is it something that we can capture? Is it something that somebody else can like claim and keep back from the world and like like those bigger themes no my kids aren't going to get that out of the story (laughs) and it's interesting again thinking back to the oscar wilde story as thinking of the nightingale as an artist talking about like people that like you know the student was someone that claimed to love art basically you know it was like someone that claimed to like really want that really need that like was like so desperate for it but then didn't appreciate it because it didn't meet the like very specific like means that they had for it. It's kind of yeah. like also just like, oh, they just didn't get it. Like, you know, the artist poured their heart and soul and blood and tears literally into this piece of art. But, you know, your opinion about it is so fickle as to like, oh, someone else doesn't like it or whatever. Then you're like, oh, yeah, it's garbage. I hate yeah. it. Too. Or, you know, I don't know. Just like not appreciating what goes into it. Yeah. Look at it and be like, oh, what's the real worth of this? Probably nothing if I can't get anything yeah. for it. <laughs> not even seeing, because in that story, it's like he doesn't even see the artist. Yeah. He just sees the art. And recognizes how beautiful it is. But yeah, he recognizes how beautiful still it is. Still throws it like, to the gutter. Yeah, he's like, how can I instrumentalize this art to my advantage? And then it's like, oh, it turns out you can't. And he's like, well, then it's worthless. <laughs> and so it's like, which yeah, is like, oh, deeply cynical about like uh, the world. But yeah. Another thing about that that I think is interesting too is like this weird sort of like spiral that it enters into in my mind where the nightingale was inspired by someone else to make the art that then that person saw, but then didn't appreciate like it's this weird thing of like they were inspired and yeah. felt something even more deeply than the person that inspired them to kind of feel that way. I don't know. Like I can't imagine yes. that that's something that they were that, you know, Oscar Wilde was thinking when he wrote that. But it's just like this kind of weird thing where like, I don't know, maybe it does go into it. I guess it kind of goes back to the fact that like when people are making art, like yeah, yeah. you feel things and you experience things. But when you do that and you're an artist, you want to then express those things to other people. And to connect yeah. with them in a way, it's like, oh, this is how, this is a feeling that I see in the world. This is something that I have felt very deeply. I want to like show that back to you and then see like that it moves you. You you know, you want, an artist wants the person to be affected by it and, and you know, like feel those feelings. Yeah. I heard someone say a really, really like a genius thing. I think it was uh, one of those like Russian writers from like the 18 somethings, but talking about like, <laughs> you know that the definition of art is like something that someone creates that makes you feel what the artist was feeling when they made it. Or, you know what I mean? Like that, that yes. makes you feel something. Yes. Like that. And so it's like with that definition, lots of things can be art, but yeah, which is, which is why like the, the Nightingale and Hans Christian Anderson story, when the King is like, Oh, let me give you some gold as like an honor. The Nightingale was like, seeing you move to tears because of my performance was the most valuable gift that you could give me. Because it's like, what does any like singer or actor, artist want? They want somebody to do exactly what you just said, like feel what they're trying to convey. It seriously, like, because yeah, like the people who made Encanto, they wanted you as an adult to be sobbing all over yourself 
because they wanted you to feel something. It's like the highest praise to know that what they created made you feel something. And so, yeah, it is like the Nightingale's inspired by the, the, the love that it sees this boy expressing in his sorrow, that he's like lying on the ground, sobbing. He's like so overcome with his emotions. And the Nightingale's like, oh my gosh, to feel a love like that, what would that be? To feel a love that hurts so exquisitely like that. And then he expresses that by, you know, sacrificing himself in that way for the idea of like this love for like turning that expression of love into like a physical thing, a physical item. And then they're like, this is useless. (laughs) How often had that probably happened to like Oscar Wilde or any artist where they're like, I am going to give so much to express the feeling that is inside of me, the, the, beauty, the joy, the grief, the sorrow, the pain that's caused by living, I'm going to turn it into something tangible. And then like they hand it to like (laughs) the audience. The audience is like, this is garbage. (laughs) (laughs) And and just like throw it into the gutter to get like run over by a cart. Oh, Oscar. I was trying to look up because I was like, I don't want to lead people astray. It was Leo Tolstoy that said the thing that I like oh. very poorly quoted, which is apparently from a book that he wrote called What is Art that I now want to read. But I was looking through the Wikipedia page, <laughs> which has a few quotes that are like, oh my gosh, very relevant to what we're talking about. So I don't think this is the quote that I've heard, but this is kind of like similar to the feeling I was getting across. Quote from the book, art begins when a man with the purpose of communicating to other people a feeling he once experienced, calls it up again within himself and expresses it by certain external signs. So that's kind of more like the creation. But basically this whole boils down to like art is something that makes people feel emotions, period. Even more relevant to the conversation that we are having regarding the Nightingale is this quote. It is difficult to say what is meant by art, and especially what is good, useful art. Interesting wording, considering what we're talking about. Yeah. Art for the sake of which we might condone such sacrifices as are being offered at its shrine. Which, in the story of, you know, the Nightingale and the Rose, yeah. it's like, the first of all, the kid is like, what, you, love is useless, this is so useless, this emotion is stupid and garbage and I hate it. But the artist, the Nightingale, completely sacrifice himself for this art to help this person feel those feelings and that person hates those feelings. And also, you know, like the kid was literally talking about, was like, no, it's of no use. It's it's impractical. I'm going to stick to metaphysics, which is totally yeah. practical. <laughs> and to quote a song by Lonely Island, what even is art? How do you define its importance? If popcorn movies are bad, how come popcorn's so delicious? The great philosophers of our time, Lonely Island. (laughs) I'm so glad that we got to explore some more literary fairy tales. We don't often get the chance because it's not totally what the podcast is about. And yet it is. It seems like about once a year we do something. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, The Snow Queen. Yeah, those ones. It's interesting because when we look at literary fairy tales, we're putting on kind of like our literary analysis hats <laughs> for a little bit. And we can talk about and dissect like word choice that was used or the dialogue that was purposely picked by a single 
author and, you know, what motifs were strategically placed to speak to the audience. And the reason why it is, you know, relevant to like our podcast is because these stories are, they are purposefully chosen to be like fairy tales to convey the messages that they want to convey. And so often in the literary world, references are made back to fairy tales, either their plots or their motifs. To really understand and appreciate a lot of the world's literature, you also need to go back and understand what stories are already like circulating amongst the folk. Literary fairy tales will stay popular and be treated like fairy tales for the same reason that other folk narratives stay popular. And it's because they deeply speak to the people that listen to them. When these stories really reach their intended audience, they have that staying power because they communicate to us. And it says something about us as an audience when these stories do resonate with us. Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a review or share us with your friends. Also consider supporting us on Patreon for access to exclusive bonus content, including outtakes and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash thefairytellers. Special thanks to Andrew Foray for our music and to Clarice Inch for our artwork. And of course, a big thank you to all our patrons. Without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Fairy tales are always more interesting when something is added to them. Each new telling recharges the narrative, making it crackle and hiss with cultural energy. Maria Tatar Is someone shooting those children now? <laughs> I know, listen, I know it sounds, yes.